Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, everybody. Today, we have the honor of highlighting possibly one of my favorite nonprofits in the whole state of South Carolina. And I am absolutely humbled by the work that I have witnessed this organization do firsthand for my patients when it comes to advocacy for IEPs, when it comes to coordination of services, when it comes to advocacy and support in applying for TEFRA insurance for families in need. I could not shout from the mountaintops enough the pillar that this organization is in the community and just how freaking amazing the women and men that work there are. So there's that. But I am talking about Family Connections of South Carolina. I'm trying really hard not to cry because they have literally changed stars for my patients and their families over the course of the 11 years of us living here. 
So please allow me the joy of introducing Amy Holbert, MSW, uh, Masters of Social Work, LISW hyphen CP, licensed clinical social worker, and also the chief executive officer for Family Connections. And if you're not familiar with them, they are a statewide nonprofit organization that connects families who have a child with a disability or a chronic health condition to resources, trainings, and all sorts of services. And basically, they're the gatekeeper. They're the key holder. And if you've heard that reference, I've used it in when I've written in the past. But we need, we need people who are the keepers of the keys to open the doors wide open, which is why I titled this episode, Opening the Doors, because that's what they are. And Amy has led this show since 2014, and I'm going to quit babbling and grab a tissue. And Amy, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming. Megan, I love you. Thank you for introducing us. Huzzah! (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Hi, everybody. I'm Amy, and I appreciate all the kind words about the organization and the work that we do. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about something that, of course, is near and dear to my heart here, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yay. Okay. All right. So when I'm looking at your bio, I'm like, good Lord, those are a lot of very impressive things. And honestly, when I think of social work, I would never have thought going from, I think of social work when I think of having to make a call because I'm worried about a child's safety. And Lord knows I've had to do that more times than I'd like to admit, right? But I do home health. I see the least of these in some of their most dire circumstances. And then my immediate next thought is, please tell me every social worker has a counselor on standby because I feel like you need that. (laughs) But How did you become a social worker? And then how were your stars blessed to do the advocacy that you do? Well, that's a great question. My path to social work personally was a little bit different because I thought I was going to be this like famous dancer when I was oh so many years younger than I am. And I also draw and paint. And so I was an interior design major and with a minor in gerontology. And um, Okay, wait. Gerontology is the study of the elderly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, yes. And I wanted to make, you know, uh, spaces accessible, right? With, and the ADA had just been, you know, right around the time I was in college, had just been passed. And so, anyway, what I learned was that I was enjoying learning about the behavior of individuals inside of a space versus designing spaces for people to live and learn inside of. So my senior year of college called my dad, my mom and said, I want to be a social worker and I only have to stay a few more years. Ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) So in in social work, I have a bachelor's of science in social work. And then I came to South Carolina to get my master's at U of SC many, many years ago. And, uh, actually told a professor that I would never work with children because of just the reason that you mentioned around, you know, my thought about social work and pediatrics was, you know, more of the, perhaps the child welfare system and that, you know, terrible side, right? That we see the more punitive side. And, um, Surprisingly, um, you know, here I am years later, having worked the majority of my 20 plus years in maternal child health. And um, I started out working in hospice and, and the mental health system. But when my first son, Andrew, was born in 1996, I was in a hospital setting and uh, he had chronic health conditions. And so we were in and out of, you know, children's hospital and, um, and there was a need for, uh, the work to be done in an outpatient setting that is, you know, to coordinate services, to run, you know, close some of the gaps that parents had. 
And I learned then from a parent's perspective that sometimes what you see on the outside of when you're working, you know, when you're working with a family, they're, especially in a outpatient setting or in a, you know, a, a sliver in time, a moment in time in a hospital setting, those are typically the worst times in a family's life, right? Um, and so um, my job was to be that voice, the person that assessed differently, that looked at the gray areas and that um, gave the picture of the the person in the environment and, you know, what was going on in their world to better help influence, um, you know, the medical plan of care. And I just, I fell in love with that. And really then my own career and interest kind of took a focus. And so, um, you know, I've worked um, at various places at the State Department of Health and with children and youth with special health care needs, as well as um, over our perinatal regionalization, which um, ensures that we have risk-appropriate care for high-risk OB patients, as well as babies that are born too soon. And so, um, but it was my own child's health that led me to the work that I'm doing now. So that's kind of a long-winded way, but that's how I arrived here. I have found that the people that start a task or a project or a journey from a labor of love, it's that bears so much fruit. I agree with you. And it's really cool to watch. Yes. Yes. There's this really famous, um, uh, it's a neurologist that studied seizure disorders, Dr. West, and like his was a labor of love. And like, that was like the first time I like cued in on like, wow, labor of love projects, but I'll save my like nerdy epilepsy thought process for later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I totally agree with you, right? I mean, it's just like your successful podcast is the, you know, spreading, realizing there was a gap and information and finding a voice and a platform to showcase other people's voices and raise those, whether it be at the individual level, right? One-on-one working with families or the community or or even at the state or or federal level. And that's, I think, where you find the passion to continue the work too. Yes. Thank you. I'm blushing and awkward turtling. So thank you. Yes. Aaron, all you, Jesus and red wine. Huzzah. Okay. So (laughs) for for folks that don't know about family connections. Now, folks, if you're not, if you haven't heard of this, then you probably don't work in EI in South Carolina. Yes. So why did I want to highlight a South Carolina-based organization? Because If your state or your area doesn't have a nonprofit structured in this manner, then I'm challenging you to lead that, create that. And maybe through today's conversation, you'll come across a nonprofit that's um, similar in your state. But um, Family Connections does a lot. So can you kind of talk to us about some of the um, the programs? Because honestly, the programs I'm the most familiar with are the TEFRA and the IEP um, supports. But I know y'all do a lot. We do. And thank you. Yes. So Family Connection actually is going on 33 years old. It's having to, you know, been in South Carolina that long. And it was started by parents of children that had um, a diagnosis when they found they did this in the in 1990 when the parent movement was really um, underway and so there is a national affiliation called Parent to Parent USA where um, the we got our beginnings. That's the core of the organization, and I'll explain that a little bit. We're called a parent center, and what makes our work different than, let's say, another support nonprofit or another navigation service, right? Or, or you know, we, we're not taking the place of the social worker that might be on your team, for instance, or, you know, the um, 
clinical work. We're not, that is not our role, you know, and so, but what we do is um, we are parents ourselves. So I get to come to this work being mom to Andrew and Evan every day with the healthcare struggles um, that my children have had. And we work with families to match them with trained volunteers, perhaps in this particular program that have a child that might have a similar diagnosis, a child of a similar age. And through our Parent to Parent USA work, we can even access a national database so that that, and we usually see those referrals, right? When um, that young child, because usually the diagnoses, uh, you know, mostly take place, you know, when a child is younger. And so um, we'll, we will receive referrals for that support parent person. And then the movement kept going and we uh, received the federal designation of um, as being South Carolina's Family Voices and the Family to Family Health Information Center. And we have now a, a responsibility to work with our Maternal Child Health Bureau here in South Carolina to work to in, you know, promote the knowledge like the program that we have, our healthcare connections program, where we help families um, understand the Medicaid system, the Medicaid waivers here, and TEFRA, which South Carolina is blessed. That's the old, like I still call it the Katie Beckett program, but our neighbors in North Carolina and Georgia don't even offer Katie, I mean, don't offer the Katie Beckett program. And so we actually um, are able to help families do that. And for those of you that may not know what that is, it's, um, States can opt in to provide this Medicaid coverage for children that are more medically complex that meet uh, a level of care. That, but their parents, it's not based on their parents' income. So the, these the children that qualify typically have private insurance of some sort, and um, but the the Tefra Medicaid can be the supplement so that we can keep mom and dad both, you know, employed and working because the cost of caring for a child that has, um, you know, a long-term medical diagnosis can be, um, you know, devastating financially, as you know, to family. Yes. I mean, we, my, as a family, I had um, major complications with both pregnancies, lots of bed rest, ended up having to have a total hysterectomy on the fly. And Husband and I both are have our master's degrees and work hard, but um, we had over forty two thousand dollars in medical debt because of the, all of that, and that, and and we had to pay it all off. But I mean, it was, and a lot of it was honestly because my children ruined my bits and pieces. And on that note, if you're in South Carolina, Vertex Physical Therapy has a phenomenal pelvic floor therapist. So we're just going to go there for a second because you don't need to sneeze pee, ladies, if you're listening. <laughs> so, <laughs> I saw. I love that. And, and yes, absolutely. And, um, and it can, but that's awful, right? I mean, yeah, it can be. Yeah. Devastating. And Tefra is hard to obtain. And so I have families that will have, honest to God, 60 plus pages of documentation for their child for feeding tube, for trach support, for um, you know, seizure medications, documenting everything. And you and I are in this world where we are familiar with these terms because we have worked in them and were educated in them. But if you have a family who's been trained to be, um, I don't know, an engineer or a, um, if their background is um, construction work or they're a fourth grade teacher, they may not be familiar with these medical terms and what the insurance paperwork is requiring. So they are overwhelmed and they get denied after denial. And meanwhile, the bills are increasing and, and their family connections staff, they work, they sit down and walk you through step by step by step for this process. So it's, I mean, I've had parents after I've told them about this, like a week or two later, they, I did come in and they're just like happy, ugly crying. They're like, Oh my God, it's approved. Like, 
it's such a relief. Yes. Yes. And, and, um, and, you know, and that is an additional stressor when you are then, you know, thinking about, I mean, I had this in my own family when my, when my Andrew was born and like you, I was on bed rest with both babies and developed help syndrome when Evan was born, my youngest and went to, he went to the NICU. Oh yeah. So, you know, it was, I understand what it's like. Um, and you know, typically women of childbearing years, you know, even though we're looking at, you know, being pregnant later in life now, the majority are still, you know, younger. And that means you're also typically young, you know, it's a time when you are, maybe starting out in your careers as well. And so, um, you know, the, the financial strain, even with families that have, you know, private insurance, um, you know, when we, it's a lot, lot. and, and I will tell you this in South Carolina, you know, Medicaid will pay for additional services sometimes that, that, you know, some private insurance companies, for instance, don't pay for. Right. And so, you know, it, it can be extremely desirable and, and necessary. And so we get about, we get over a hundred referrals a, a month to that particular program. And last year we got a, you know, we, we served and helped over 600 people in South Carolina. Yes. Yeah. In, in that one program. So I, you know, I think that that is, you know, um, some of your listeners might even know Miss Beverly, but uh, Miss Beverly is uh, amazing at her at her job, and um, so you know there's there's definitely definitely a need there. And um, when I got you know I know you you spoke about that I've been at Family Connection since 2014, uh, and when I was brought on board, uh, the organization was looking into expanding their work. Um, because I think about the work at Family Connection is that parents come in at different points and trans. What I've noticed is typically like a transition time, right? In your child's life, you're going from you know, um, you know maybe you're in early intervention, but now your child is going to have to you know go from an IFSP to an IEP, and then you have to learn a whole new language, right? Just like you said, like there's a medical language that we learn, you know. Speak, you know, PT, OT, speech, all of that. And now we're getting good at that. And then, you know, the systems of care that you have to learn, you know, as a parent, as you kind of travel through the journey of parenting your child. So then kind of the next piece of that, the organization was looking at is really how can we um, best help families make some of those transitions and at your school is that time, right? In a child's life. And we spend a long time. And so there are, there is a federal um, designation and um, grant that we applied for when I came on board and were awarded in 2015 uh, that made us, um, gave us the designation of South Carolina's Parent Training and Information Center. And some people might hear that as PTI, um, and we are, every state has a parent training and information center because this funding, which is not a lot of funding, but it comes, the designation comes under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act or IDEA. And so when that law was enacted, it set forth in saying that we know parents are a child's first and best teachers. And so if we're going to have healthy, you know, thriving children, we also need to ensure that we are educating and supporting the parents, letting them know what their rights and responsibilities are under the law, how to get services under, you know, under IDEA, which is, by the way, where, you know, but early intervention is covered under the same law. It's part C under IDEA. And a lot of people don't, and I know a lot of parents don't necessarily know that. And to me, it's backwards, right? It should be ABC, but it's, you go from C to yeah. <laughs> yeah. It opened up a lot of opportunity for Family Connection, and we have grown significantly since that time and um, spread the 
the different, you know, into different type of evidence-based peer support types of programs. So, um, and I don't think I finished my thought, I'm sorry, about like what makes us different, but I have like 38 employees we have across South Carolina and 85% of us are parents of kids with a disability ourselves. So we are, eight, that that is, I believe, I mean, I know what makes us a little bit different in that, you know, I, we can, we know what it's like to navigate healthcare. Many of us have applied for and received TEFRA um, or Medicaid services or WIC or other types of services that might have been needed for our children. We've sat in the hospital and waited on our kid to get out of surgery. We we know how frustrating it is to get, you know, autism services, you know, for our children. And that we can connect on that level. But then my folks are also trained with an understanding of each one of the systems of care, education and early intervention being one of them um, that has provided and has grown even more significantly since the pandemic hit, hit families. So, um, and that is the, the program um, that I believe, you know, that you're talking about where you know about helping with IEP meetings. So a family can easily call in for any of our services Monday through Friday. And actually, if you wanted to speak to somebody, but we get the majority of our referrals actually come on our website and you can self-refer that way. Um, And um, then one of our folks in your area will then be assigned and call you back to assess your need. And we have an established education partner program now. and. we will, first of all, the idea is that we are not lawyers. We are not special education advocates. There are, that's a, those are like different kinds of professions, but we're there to help you understand, help you. Um, we have organizational tools and all kinds of information. Um, and if you would like for or us to attend um, a school-related meeting, you can request that. And our person will, you know, take a look at the services that your child is receiving or that they get, make some suggestions, and then help you understand that process. And then um, if you still want us to go to the IEP meeting with you, we will go there to provide you with the support um, that you need because it can be a very intimidating time. Um, And, you know, IEP meetings, you have lots of professionals sitting around a table or these days, you know, on the video screen. On screen. Yes. And they have information about your beloved child. And so as a parent, I can tell you from my own experience, I would kind of hold my breath when I would go to those meetings. And because I was like ready to hear like, uh, you know, oftentimes what wasn't my child doing right Um, but that's not the purpose of the meetings. Of course, that's my own internal kind of anxiety thinking it through and disability doesn't discriminate as we've kind of talked about, right? So it doesn't care where you're born or how much money you have or, you know, what race or ethnicity you are. And so, you know, we make assumptions either way that parents, you know, based on your profession or your whatever, you know. But it's just like in a healthcare professional that, no, like I didn't know what you were necessarily talking about. And um, when I sat down and my husband and I sat down to, you know, go over the evaluation for my child, what are those terms? What's that alphabet soup? And it's intimidating. And then we'll go there, we'll help you. And then after that, we will then follow up to, you know, to touch base with you in that program to make sure that, you know, that you as a parent are. Okay, because sometimes, I mean, I, I tell folks, you know, I cried after. I hope my children are not listening, but I cried after my second son's um, 504 planning meeting every year in high school. Every year I left that meeting and I cried my eyes out. And I know what to ask for, I know what I should be hearing, right? And, um, and it was still a stressful time for me as a parent. So that, you know, those different, those two big programs, I think 
for your, you know, for the audience that, um, that are listening, you know, I can tell you, um, give you just some of our, our statistics from um, early interventionists and, and the referrals that we get here in South Carolina. Um, and it's amazing because early interventionists for our birth to five children in South Carolina for Family Connection are our number one referring professionals, number one. So love them, love them, love them. And go ahead. You were going to ask. No, I was going to say. No, I was going to say, and that's different here in South Carolina. Yes. And that's what, so folks, if you're listening, this is unique to South Carolina. So let me translate this. In other states, the way the current evidence-based practice trend is going is that early interventionists are being, um, that position is being morphed into service coordinator on the team. The service coordinator on the IFS team, like it's done in Virginia, like it's done in Kansas, um, kind of like how we see it done. Um, if, if you listen to a talk we had with um, Allison a couple of weeks ago in Texas, they act like as a service coordinator to get OTPT speech or a certified teacher in, um, certified or licensed teacher in. And that service coordinator may be the SLP, OT, or PT or it may be the certified licensed professional. And in South Carolina, our early interventionists are not a certified licensed professional currently. So these are some of the things that are just um, unique to South Carolina. And yes, I hear all of the thoughts going on in multiple people's heads, but this is just, so our early interventionists have different degrees and different backgrounds, but they're not an SLP, OT, or PT, like what you may be familiar with in whatever states that you are practicing in. But um, phenomenal, love them, would have been completely lost had it not been for um, Brantley Bonnet, you're my heroine. Um, she was my own son's early interventionist. And like, um, we called her the Brants, and he called her the Buance. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. But like, I just have to like preface this that like, Different states call them different things, but as it's written under IDEA, everyone should have license and certifications. So, right, sorry, but that, and that's thank you for that clarification so that they do understand. But you know, even we even receive you know referrals for our support programs as well as for what you mentioned the healthcare programs from you know even our SLPs. If the some you know if someone on their team had not you know, made the referral, for instance, or the connection. And all of our other programs and age groups, um, parents are the number one referring, you know. So, you know, because we're an organization where parents, you know, they have already been to the professionals and now they want to understand, well, what did, what does this mean? What is my family going to look like next? But um, so, and also as a parent training information center, I will say this, most PTIs actually have more referrals that are from that part B, even at, you know, that kindergarten level on up. We are required federally to serve families up to age 26. But this year, um, I just pulled up my handy dandy uh, data report. And uh, this year for the birth to five-year-olds, we had, we, this year we had the most referrals across our entire organization ever, ever. And um, it was a 44% increase pre-COVID, from pre-COVID. So we're, you know, my folks are feeling, you know, the, there's definitely a need right now for what we're doing, but we had 5,330 referrals last year and um, a little over um, 4,000 families were actually, you know, received an intensive one-on-one service provision. And 55% of those were families that had children birth to five. And that does make our organization a little bit different at the national level. But I want to say that I think um, it's something I'm super proud of for the, the work and the relationships that we are making and having with uh, early intervention teams in and companies in South Carolina, because um, I know that, like you said, you know, there are gaps in services everywhere, right? For every service, 
and, and every provision and, and they call things by different names. But ultimately, you know, the goal is to provide the service and care and the, the best of that to the child and families. And so, um, I, you know, I got I'm very proud that we have those relationships. Um, we also house on our website for in South Carolina, our part C is called BabyNet. Um, and so because BabyNet at the state office knows that families come to our website to you know look for resources, we house what's called uh, BabyNet Central Directory, which is in statute, but it's a you know, it's a family resource portal so that families can see, you know, I live in this county and what EI companies are here, what services are there um, for early for early childhood. And um, but I will say, Michelle, that um, right now, my one of my biggest concerns are um, it's really looking at that. Where are our preschool children? Because if you take a look at our state numbers, our early intervention system has made even through even through COVID, they've made more children eligible, and yet our um, that crossover from Part C to Part B to preschool settings for evaluation, for further services, for continuation of services, it is it is very difficult right now. So. What I have noticed, because I've done this for a long time, um, and full disclosure, I volunteer for um, SCISHA, uh, South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am on their baby net committee. Um, uh, what we have seen is that there is, and folks, if you're listening, you can attest to this, in graduate school, um, there is a sufficient breakdown in understanding and being taught the makeup of one state early intervention system within the language acquisition course or within the counseling course, because that's where it would align appropriately within curriculum, right? Um, actually, while you were talking, I literally emailed Megan and was like, I have an idea on outreach to the grad programs. <laughs> because like, I was like, identify a problem, work on a resolution. But because of that, SLPs are not taught and again, this is an anomaly within South Carolina where the service coordinators are not the licensed professionals as they are in like the majority of the other states, right? So we're not taught on how to coach the caregiver in the transition process. And oftentimes planting a seed by one person is not sufficient for growth. It needs to be nurtured. So if the early interventionist alone carries the weight on ensuring the um, transition from IDEA Part C to IDEA Part B, early intervention to public schools, that early childhood special ed class, they will... Um, it's a lot. And the caregivers may not understand why it's so important because, you know, they think we'll just go to kindergarten when they're five or six, right? But if the SLP is equipped with knowing protocols, if they're equipped with knowing what the federal law says for the transition and how it has to occur six months before they turn three and blah, 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 like then they can help nurture that to improve that they're picked up and transitioned to the LEA. Now, another deficit, and folks, I'm sure that y'all have seen this um, in, in your settings, is that um, a child does not have to be referred to an early intervention system. A physician can make a referral directly to a private practice or to an individual SLP as well. And so, that happens a lot. I mean, I would, because of the nature of the patients that I treat, I would get direct referrals predominantly from physicians um, or specialty clinics and not from the early interventionist because I have such a subspecialty, right? And some families elect not to receive services within the framework of IDEA Part C because they misinterpret or they're afraid of special education. And, and that's where that caregiver is on their, on their um, grief cycle stage, right? And as the practitioner, I am there to, I get one hour a week with that caregiver and that baby, and it is my job to empower in an hour, right? 
And so I can go in and I can encourage, but that's all predicated on my baseline knowledge of the state EI system. So if you're listening and you're not familiar with how your state early intervention system is run, then we need to circle back around and reach out. So if if you're a clinical supervisor, if you work adjunct, or if you're a professor, then reach out to this entity. And the acronym is the PTI. Is that what you called it? Yes. We're the, we're the Parent Training Information Center. Yeah. Yes. Re- so reach out to your state PTI. And here in South Carolina, reach out to Family Connections and ask for training for yourself to be taught what this is so that you are equipped to pass that knowledge on. Um, whether it be to the caregiver or if you're a clinical supervisor, like I'm a soup, I take a student every term um, so that I can fill their their figurative cup as well. Yes. And, so, and that's, you know, wonderful advice because, you know, it is it ends up being a gap. And part of the law as well requires your um, LEAs and, and even our, even your early intervention system to do something called child find, which means that they have to make efforts to outreach and identify children. And the law does not require anybody, I mean, anybody can make a child find referral, but they're end up being based on, you know, what system or the LEA or whatever. Sometimes you get kind of, uh, you know, um, barriers there, you know, every kind of bump in the road, there, there could be, um, a potential barrier. And, and the, the, um, kind of my thoughts around this is if we are having more children identified, right. And receiving early intervention services, we should see an increase in the number of three-year-olds that receive special education services within our LEAs. And, you know, last year's data was not, I mean, you know, it's an anomaly. We had the pandemic, but one thing that, you know, we are going to, from an advocacy standpoint is, you know, continue to, to take a look at that because um, we have seen our numbers of, of families calling us for um, the age of four and then six. I mean, six makes sense. They're going to kindergarten and a you know great teacher can then identify, a, you know, a need um, because every system defines disability differently as well. And parents don't understand that either. And so, um, but, you know, I will let you know that, you know, the number one diagnosis uh, that we see is, you know, we have kids that have a diagnosis of ASD and autism. And so, you know, these little people are, you know, we're doing great jobs at, let's say, you know, screening for, you know, um, signs and symptoms of autism, which in a, in the young child, you know, the pediatricians will you know, administer the MCHAT, for instance. And so, you know, there's been a lot of education for, you know, primary care doctors to do that and then, you know, refer and they refer to, you know, one of the developmental clinics in South Carolina, let's say. But a six month to two and a half year wait list. Can we just breathe that one for a second? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. If you're listening and you're a developmental pediatrician, please move to the Palmetto yes. State. <laughs> and all, all of you clinical psychologists as well, because, you know, yes. that is like, I mean, it, it's, and, and while we're at it, anybody who wants to provide ABA therapy, come on. Because that seems to be, you know, we all know early intervention is what's best. Period. Done. Done. You know, research, evidence based, but you know, we're identifying these young children, and then you know, having to to wait or you know, try to figure out what to do, and um, oftentimes that that kind of get there's a breakdown there as well if the child then you know um, is three, four, five, and then going into schools. So, you know, one of the things that, that we're really working at and promoting is trying to ensure that families understand, hey, you know, who ask who who's your child find person at your school, in your school district? Find out who that is, because it may or may not be on the website of your school. You know, and because every district, you know, and state handles who does that differently. Um, and, you know, teaching them the things to ask for around eligibility. And I will just give you a little idea too for on our website, we have an information store that's at the 
very top right corner hand and or you can drop down and look for resources under what our work. But we have a parent early intervention guide. And then we have for that, you know, in South Carolina, it would be our baby net program to talk about educate parents about the law. And then we have a parent guide for transition so that you can order that and, and, and know what should happen and what can happen when your child is transitioning from part C to part B. Or if you are a parent and you've never been in a, you know, kind of identified, then um, we have some of those resources online too. And then we offer, and all of these resources are at no cost. So anybody can order them. And currently right now they're at no cost for providers either to order, to be able to give out to families. Um, They're beautifully designed with children that are from South Carolina. And then I'm going to put in a shameless plug here for our, um, our number one kind of um, family event, which is also a, a fundraising opportunity for our organization because we are a nonprofit, which means I have to beg, borrow, and steal to continue. Not, I really don't steal, but beg and <laughs> beg, beg, beg for, you know, donations and for, you know, uh, opportunities to get our staff paid so we can continue the work, but it's called the Look Photography Event. And so we, every year across South Carolina, have families that volunteer and professional photographers that volunteer their time and talent. And we pair them with a family to help them tell the family's story. And then we um, have uh, an exhibit And currently in South Carolina, we just unveiled the 2020 Look Exhibit, which is in our um, state Richland County library. And um, on the, and and if you are not in the state, you can type in Look on our website and you can pull up all of the different, they're beautifully done black and white pictures, along with a story that the picture is looking to tell about the child and the idea is that you see children with, you know, hidden disabilities and, you know, all different um, ages and we're living their best lives and playing the violin or, you know, highlighting a, um, a time in their life um, or something special so that we hope to kind of break down those uh, misconceptions about individuals living and thriving with disability. Um, And they're beautiful pictures of these precious children across our state. On our website and on any of our uh, at-no-cost materials, um, the colored pictures are pictures from many of those um, photo shoots over the years. So um, please take a look at it. Buy a buy a lookbook because we sell them too online. So yes, and and they're beautiful. I mean, folks, we, uh, th- this is also at the library that my boys and I go to like a couple times a month. So when I saw that it was up, I walked in and I walked through and I knew some faces. And it was just like I like there was one in particular that like. I legit ugly cried in front of because I think we had gotten and it was just like, I mean, you know, we're there for like a moment in time when we work with these little ones and my goose was like, it's okay, mommy, let it out. And then we have to go get a chapter book. Yes. <laughs> I was like, yes, yeah, sir. Thank you. And moving on. <laughs> but, um, but like y'all it's, it's just, it's a great, project. And again, a fantastic way to raise awareness and um, and bring awareness to the neurodiversity movement. Okay. So yesterday I have a story and we'll, and we'll guide from yesterday. I had a mom call and she's a very dear friend of mine. And she and I had a heartfelt, tearful moment. Her little one went to the first day of school, first day of kindergarten. And she had to go in for kindergarten for lunch because no one in the building knew how to feed her child. Um, she called and asked the principal 
how do I drop her off? Because, you know, we have a wheelchair for supports. Um, and was told by the principal, um, oh, well, we don't really have a, a drop off for someone like her. So after the regular kids get done, then you can bring her in and we'll just get her out then. Oh, it gets worse. Um, she goes in for lunch and um, is told, she goes, well, she's still in a wheelchair. And they're like, well, yeah, it's just so much going on in the room right now. We just left her in there for for this. Oh, it gets worse. She comes back at pickup and was told that the special class was getting discharged 30 minutes early. That way they're out of the way for the regular kids when they get dismissed. Literally what she was told. How heartbreaking. And then they put her back in the car and said she'd spent all afternoon in her wheelchair. And mom Mom is one empowered mama. And she got me in her corner as well as one heck of an army behind her. And I was like, oh. So she she did what any mom would do when that has happened to her child. She grieved. And she got angry. And I watched all of the emotions cross my friend's face and cross my friend's heart. And then I was like, okay, we get it out. But then what do we do to ensure that this doesn't happen tomorrow? And then what do we do to ensure that this doesn't happen for another child? And guys, it's cool that she's got me or you. But what about the parents that don't have that? Right. And and go ahead. I'm sorry. It just is. I was going to say, that's why I said, this is, well, this is why we call family connections. This is why you have that PTI because a mom can call. Now on that note, it, what you described as your parent partnership, there's an organization called Feeding Matters. Have you heard of them? I have not. Okay. Oh yeah. my God, I'm going to, okay. Okay. So I volunteer for Feeding Matters. They're the international nonprofit. Um, and they're the reason that we have the ICD 10 codes for pediatric feeding disorder for acute or chronic. Okay. So, um, it is a nonprofit organization that, um, pulls in leaders in the field for pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders from GI pediatricians, allergists, ENTs, occupational therapists, and speech language pathologists, um, and caregivers. And everything is housed and started from the framework. It was founded by a mother of triplets whose children had feeding and swallowing difficulties. This was her labor of love. Sound familiar? (laughs) Um, This organization has a power of two. Wow. And that's their parent mentorship program such that if you are new to the journey of PFD, you can call in as a caregiver and another caregiver with a similar story will guide you. Right. Right. That parent to parent, that core, um, you know, that having a shared experience provides you with not just the that's the the core of that to me is like, you know, you'll get the technical, like, but it's the hope that somebody else has done this, seen this and made it through that is so powerful and can sometimes often is not explained well. (laughs) So I definitely, I mean, I think having that information and being able to put that as a resource on our website for our families as well that are experiencing feeding and issues too, but back to the mom that your friend yesterday, I mean, right. You know, like all of the four letter words fell out of my mouth. I mean, like if there was an award for eloquence and profanity <laughs> yesterday, I won it. So did that mama. Right. But like, not my proudest moment, but like, I love this kid and it's okay to get professionally angry as well, but it is in that anger and in that haste, do no harm. Take a step back and say, okay, this happened and this is horrible. And this is a violation of her basic human rights to be strapped into a chair all day long. Like that's neglect. Right. And unfortunately, you know, we hear that and, you know, we hear stories like this and so that mom can certainly call us and also make a referral online and somebody can, you know, 
you know, she needs some additional support or help through that. But, but I think that, that empowering parents with information is kind of that baseline. That's the first part. That's why you have the T and PTI, right? Is that training and all the different ways that we learn as adults. You know, some people, you know, just need to know where to go to read it. Some people have to read it and hear it and, you know, all the different ways. But it's taking it like a situation like you described to that next level where we as professionals oftentimes, and when I worked in hospital settings or whatever too, you know, you become, it's your job, right? It's a job to folks. And when you have kids, you know, time after time after time, sometimes we as professionals also need to take a step back, I think. And remember that this is somebody's child. This could be your child. And how would you, I mean, just basic. I mean, I'm not even talking about, let's not, I'm not even talking about like learning and like what they need to be doing during the day, but the words that were used to describe her child and the situation are offensive and upsetting, right? Like even that basic human, you know, I'm all okay if like somebody makes a mistake with, how they pronounce something, or maybe if they don't know what person, you know, first language might be, let's say, and then, you know, I can take the opportunity to view that as that is a a learning point. That is me learning about pronouns and how to ask someone for their preferred pronouns. I'm learning and I'm befuddling, but I always acknowledge, hey, I'm learning. Can you teach me? Right. Right? Yes. Add with the added, I mean, but you add that kind of emotional layer to it, you know, that as a parent and you're hearing that, all right, that's where I'm starting with you that day. And then I'm going to see that, you know, well, why was my child, you know, not taught? Why are they, you know, and the explanations are not helpful either. And I think that that's kind of that cycle where we then begin to think, well, why is my child not as worthy as, as, typically developing child or, you know, and all that kind of self-talk that you hope that somebody has the support, you know, can find the resources, has an organization that they can reach out to that's not going to, you know, we don't have eligibility requirements. We don't, we're at no cost to a family. And some parents just need that extra support on the phone to be reassured. And some parents need somebody to, you know, help them take on something that is, you know, um, not being delivered appropriately. And while that might not be us, just like many of you connect your families or your own children to resources, you know, we're able to do that as well. So, but in that situation, it's just hurt after hurt. And you're right, recognizing that there's grief there, but it's grief that is like, not that like you're sad that you have this beautiful child, but you're sad because you want what's best for your child and your child's not being included or accepted in the way that you want yes. to be accepted. Yes. It's as my daddy would say, it's righteous anger. I wish you could see me right now. I'm fidgeting because I was just so hot mad yesterday. I was like, rah, 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 rah. and then I was like, okay, let's breathe. We're going to make this better. Like, blah, blah, blah. But like teachable opportunities. But this was a big deviation. But y'all, that's what that's what we're here for. Family connections is empowering and changing the narrative. I mean, and if we can do this in the deep south. And change narratives here. <laughs> now. <laughs> so much not said. I got to be honest, when my husband moved to, moved us to South Carolina, I was like, where have we gone back in time? But like, I'm from North Carolina. Even I remember that kind of feeling too, you know, but, but I mean, you're right. Like the one thing I have learned is that, you know, that resources are limited, but you know, um, and they're very limited in our state, right? I mean, you drive outside of one of the, you know, cities that's on the map and you are going to make a home visit in someone's house that might have a dirt floor, right? I mean, and literally have done therapy. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're talking like 20 minutes out of the city, out of the state capital. Yes. 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 So, you know, understanding, understanding that I, I just, 
you know, to be thought of as though like that Southerners are typically kind. I sometimes, you know, I want, I would just remind everybody, you know, it takes just a moment to be able to even preface some of the the words that we use and to be mindful in our hectic days that, you know, you are in a position to, you know, set the trajectory for not only the child, but and their education and their outcome, because you are important in their lives. The work you do is so valuable, but you also have a moment in time to be able to change the way that parent potentially views their own child or loves their child or, you know, understands and connects with you, which we know you're going to have better outcomes if we have parents that are involved in their child's education, whether it be an early intervention or, you know, on down the road. And so, you know, taking a moment back and remembering that like, that's the same parent that's going to come sit down at the table with you for her daughter's IEP, right? That's the same parent that like, you know, where, where you, you're frustrated, you know, with, oh my gosh, they just, you know, they don't listen or they're too protective. I hear that all the time. That, you know, by the time, you know, we're defeated in elementary school, sometimes we feel that way, you know, like you're advocating, advocating as a parent. And then they get to high school and they're like, all of a sudden they're supposed to be able to advocate for themselves, you know, and that's really hard for us to let go of as parents. And so again, any, each one of those major transitions in the lifespan and growth of your child, you know, it's, uh, any parent, parenting can be hard, but remembering to, you know, you might not know the answer. You might not have the answer that a parent wants to hear, but delivering that with respect and kindness and keeping that child out in front of all that you do and remembering that's why you're there, I think is, you know, is the way that it can be the the path that we want to set up to be able to have these relationships with one another that are kind, that are productive. It's going to be easier than when you have to tell that parent, I'm sorry, we're not going to, you know, we're trying, we're trying, this milestone is here. Let's look at an alternative to try to get there or whatever, or give them news that you know, it might be hard to hear. But a crucial conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on our end, clinicians, there are organizations that will equip and empower your caregivers to be advocates and to walk alongside them in their journey with their little one, especially when they're not so little. But we gotta know about them. So, and that's key. Also, I have so many ideas. So when we're done recording, can I have like five minutes to word vomit a couple things at you? Would that be okay? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Really quickly, if somebody is impassioned after they hear this, and as my grandma would say, maybe they got a little bit of love money hanging around. How can they, let's beg, let me beg, borrow, plead, and rob for you. How can they support? Absolutely. It's so easy to donate. You go to our website and it is www.familyconnection, it's not plural, familyconnectionsc.org. And just scroll down that webpage and press the donate button. And if you have families that need to get in touch with us, our 1-800 number is one 800 578-8750. And on another day, we'll talk about all of our services that we do, the equal services, but in Spanish, but our Spanish line, which is answered by someone that speaks Spanish, so you don't have to go through a language line, is 1-888-808-7462. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amy, thank you. And Megan, again, thank you so much for the introduction to allow us to shine this light. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? 
The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.